happen. Uh, uh, recording. Ta-da. There we are, recording. Hello, hello, greetings. Thank you, Monique. Um, it is October 13th, 2023. And um, if you have not been to this class, just to let you know that we'll we'll meditate for about 30 minutes and then I'll talk for a while. And then we'll have time for questions. Um, I, I just, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, sometimes separate, you know, go into your bubble of, oh, Buddhism, oh, recovery, okay, the world doesn't exist outside that. So uh, I do just want to acknowledge what a troubling week it has been with events in Israel and in Gaza. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to all the people suffering in those lands. And, you know, I was reading about um, the rules of war, <laughs> which is such a strange concept that, you know, because war to me is just sort of the, the breakdown of, of law, of human civilization, but, but that, you know, in over centuries, there have been these supposed agreements about what's okay. And, and of course, every time there's a war, at least somebody breaks those rules. But um, it's uh, the the point of it being really the the point of that I came out of in the article I was reading was that it's not the people who suffer who instigate wars. It's you know systems and governments and armies and. And then the rest of the people, <laughs> the the civilians of the world, then wind up suffering, and and how horrific that is. So may, maybe just to dedicate our practice tonight to the people who are suffering and to and to have suffered uh, this week. Um. So. I also am going to be, um, just to let you know, next month I will be away. So there will be a substitute teacher, uh, Laura Burgess, who is a, uh, a Zen teacher from San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, she has a new book. I wrote a blurb for it called The Zen Way of Recovery. <laughs> and um, it's a terrific book, and she's a wonderful teacher, Um and she's one of the founders of the San Francisco Zen Center's recovery program that's been going on for over 20 years now. Um, so, she, you know, if you can come and see her, I am going to be on retreat. I'm going to be sitting myself for six weeks. If I can, if I don't run away, if I don't escape out the back door of the retreat center, uh, you know, but, uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to and uh, and not <laughs> to going on long retreat, but uh, I will be back uh, in December. And uh, so uh, if you tune in, then you will get to see Kevin in a different mind state, uh, presumably, right? Uh, for those who have been uh, practicing with me over the years, you've seen me in many mind states, so you can add this one to the list. All right, so I will stop 
blabbing and uh, let us have some some meditation time. So just settling into your posture. And I think I will begin with a bell tonight just to set things off. Settling into a posture that's comfortable for you and supports your bright awareness. You can close your eyes or just lower your gaze, turning the attention inward. Go inward to the body first. Just feeling your body at rest. Feeling how you're holding your body. Seeing if you can release any tension, tightness in the body. Relaxing the jaw softening the belly. Sense of ease, calm throughout the body. What sensations are prominent for you right now, just to observe and feel into those sensations. And feeling the breath moving in the body. And turning inward as well to your mood or feeling state. And breathing with any feelings. And we start to notice the movement of the breath, chest and the belly. the sensations of air at the nostrils. It can be helpful to feel the merging of 
physical sensations with emotional sensations, emotional states. See their intertwining nature and feeling the breath moving with that connection. The mood, emotions can be felt in the chest and the belly, just as the breath moves through the body in those areas. And as we use the breath as a mindfulness object, naturally the mind will wander, thoughts will capture our attention. Our practice includes thoughts as well. turning inward to the thought life, the thought world. When you notice that you're caught up in thinking, just acknowledging that and gently coming back to the body and the felt experience. The thoughts can be very compelling. They tell us that they're important, that we need to think them. When we look closely, we see that thinking agitates the mind and body. This is where suffering comes, where grasping, remembering, judging, all of these habitual thoughts appear. We start to live in our mind, lose touch with the present moment, with our bodies, with our breath. And the stories that arise in the mind lead from one to another, 
so that eventually we're completely out of touch with the present moment. When we notice this, we come back, but as we come back, can be helpful to see how it feels to return, how it feels to let go. We discover the tension, the disturbance that the mind causes and we become motivated to let go more often, more thoroughly. We see that much of our thinking is just repetitive recitation of worries or memories or calculations, plans, no real value. Things that can easily be let go of with no loss. As we start to see the unproductive nature of much of our thinking, we can go to another extreme and start to judge thoughts, think that they're bad or that we are failing by thinking. This is just piling on another level of thought, judging. Thoughts are natural. A 
our mind naturally produces thoughts, no reason to judge that. There's nothing bad about thought. Nonetheless, in this practice, we do practice letting go. Just being with the raw nature of experience, body of feeling, of awareness. This practice of mindfulness is most beneficial when it's joined with the attitude of kindness, of caring for ourselves and for others. We can even feel the breath itself as an act of self-care, breathing in and breathing out.
All right. <laughs> Meditating after dinner. Mm. <laughs> Not my most alert time. I don't know about you guys. As long as I don't literally fall asleep in front of the computer, I guess it's all right. So, um, you know, I mentioned that I, I am going away on a retreat, and I thought uh, this might be um, a nice time to talk about retreats and, and their place in the uh, meditation and Buddhist kind of practice realm. You know, um, when um, when you have something like a, a just a recovery retreat or an AA retreat or something, it's it's tends to be something that's um, where there's a lot of talking and sort of uh, connection with people, um, and so there have been times, you know, my, the retreats that I teach are mostly silent. We we do a little bit of talking. Um, in as a group and and in dyads but um sometimes uh, occasionally people have been kind of surprised when they came on a retreat with me and found out how much of the time they were going to not be talking and and so i i've i've become more explicit in my advertising <laughs> to say uh the retreat is conducted in noble silence um because certainly there's a value in in um, you know in in a in a more social retreat. You know, you even hear, I mean, obviously of you know of businesses having a retreat where people, and it's just the idea of just being getting away from the, your ordinary circumstance and and being put in a in a different environment that allows people. To, for instance, have create more creativity or or connect more, but a Buddhist meditation retreat is um, has a distinct um, shape and and I would say value, and it goes back to the to the time of the Buddha, you know, and and from what we are given to understand. During the Buddha's lifetime, as he gained followers, people who ordained as monks and nuns to be with him, they were uh, they they would often live somewhat uh, peripatetic lives where they would walk around a lot and they would, you know, maybe stay in a monastery for a week or a few days and then they would go off and kind of go from village to village and meditate in the forest and then go into a village for alms and take their bowls where they would get fed. And, but in the in the uh, rainy season, it wasn't practical for them to move around. And uh, in fact, uh, it could be... Uh, it could be annoying to the farmers when they they could accidentally walk through the rice fields that were flooded and so 
uh, it became a rule that there was you weren't allowed to go go anywhere during the rainy season. You had to stay in one place. And the, the rainy season in India apparently lasts for three months. And so it became a standard yearly practice for the monks to stay in one place and to just practice for three months each year. And and so in the in some of the different traditions, particularly in the Thai forest tradition that I'm aware, you know, more knowledgeable about, they still do a three-month retreat each year for the for the monks. And um and indeed, the retreat that I'm going on is half of three months. Uh, so the Insight Meditation Society, uh, when it was founded back in the late 70s, um, they decided that part of their yearly schedule would be a three-month retreat every fall. But it's not, not the same time of year as in India, I don't believe, uh, because they run it from September to December. Uh, but it kind of fits with our climate and the northern hemisphere and the temperate zone that Massachusetts is in. And and I actually attended that three month retreat. And you know, if you've read One Breath at a Time, you may recall that I talked about being on that three month retreat in 1981. And that's really the last time that I spent any significant period of time at the Insight Meditation Society. So going back there for half of the retreat, which is one of the ways they break it down now, they allow people to just attend for six weeks. Um, it's it's a bit of a, um, you know, deja vu <laughs> for me to go back there uh, 40 years and uh, later and 40 years older and uh, in recovery, when I was there in 1981, I was not sober. In fact, I arrived with quite a hangover, uh, as I recall. Uh, we won't go into the details, but just to say that I did get drunk the night before. Uh, uh, but um, so it's a little bit unnerving, you know, uh, to go back there and sit. It feels a little bit like uh, there's going to be ghosts, you know, ghosts of Kevin past, you know, haunting me. Let's hope not. Um, but but certainly it's a it's a really good opportunity to practice. Uh, I haven't been on a lot of ret long retreats. I I have a commitment, and I have had a commitment ever since that time to go on some sort of meditation retreat every year. There were one or two years in those 42 years that I have missed uh, going on any retreat, I think, particularly very early in sobriety around 87 or 88. I think I, I missed going on retreat. But, but it's, you know, this is part of what I want to talk about is the idea of, you know, not just having a daily meditation practice, but having a yearly retreat practice. And it it always feels like a um, a really important touchstone each year uh, to to arrive on a retreat, to sit a retreat. Um, and it's quite interesting over the years to see how it changes. You know, you would kind of think that Oh well, you've done this so many times, and you, you know, been on so many retreats, and you meditate and write about this and everything. It must just sort of get old hat, 
but it's quite the opposite actually i find that each time i go on retreat there's something new about it uh and and i discover new things both internally in terms of my own meditation experience uh, but all, and also in terms of my uh, insight experience my my sort of the things that i awaken to the things i notice so it's it's quite um a powerful and a meaningful piece of my of my life and of my of my year and i will say that uh as a person who you know a mentally ill person you know i mean i identify as an alcoholic and that's a mental illness you know and i identify as a depressive and that's a mental illness uh i i mean i i do pretty well i have a pretty good life i have a very i have an incredibly good life actually but you know i manage my mental illness pretty well <laughs> i'm pretty functional you know but being just alone with my head you know not always easy you know and and maybe that's and I, well i will say that you know you don't have to be mentally ill for it to be difficult to go on a long meditation retreat it's 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 a challenge you know um and and all you have to do to understand the challenge is to think about all the ways that every day you do things in order to change how you feel or what you're thinking about uh the what you know when when you get into a car when you look at your phone when you read a book when you call a friend when you go to a restaurant you don't get to do all any of those things on a retreat right it's just sitting and walking meditation meals a little bit of teaching and every couple of days you meet with the teacher so it's very very simple and that of course is the beauty of it and the, and that's the foundation that's the structure that's very purposeful um and because it allows for a settling and a calming that's simply unachievable i think outside of that kind of a context um and again just when you when you realize how how busy we keep ourselves uh and and uh, it, it, you know then you can see how how not doing anything could be quite a shock but you know it's interesting that i think most people i don't know most but many people particularly people who are employed <laughs> uh, or parents or active people you know feel will often say oh i'm so busy i'd love to get a break you know and and when you say well i'm going to go on a meditation retreat people often say well that just sounds so great uh i'd love to do that and i hope they do <laughs> but i think that when people hear that they imagine something different from what a insight meditation retreat is like I think people imagine something like, well, I'll do some yoga in the morning and then I'll get a massage and, you know, eat some organic food and uh, hang out and read a 
inspirational book and take a walk and uh, with my friend and anyway i'm i'm really <laughs> let i'm going to read a little bit from one breath at a time because uh, towards the end of this book i i put in a couple of sections well one section that's about retreat and then two sections that are about daily practice so the the section on retreat is called depth of practice retreats and it's at the end of step 11 in case uh, you ever want to look at it again or even read along now. I like to think of the development of my spiritual life as having two major aspects, depth and breadth. In step 12, I'll talk about breadth of practice as I address the idea of practicing these principles in all our affairs. For step 11, it may be helpful to talk about depth. Depth of practice most commonly is developed on retreat. On retreat, we take some time away from our common daily life and focus exclusively on our inner life and the development of special qualities. The qualities that typically head the list are mindfulness and concentration. But many other qualities grow on retreat as well. Patience, loving-kindness, compassion, right view, right effort, faith, wisdom, and more. A typical Vipassana retreat is conducted in noble silence, which means that the students don't talk with one another, but speak only during interviews with teachers and during question and answer sessions. If there's an emergency, of course, you can speak to staff members. This silence has an amazing effect, helping to quiet the mind and turn our attention inward. I find that people who have never sat a retreat find the idea of silence to be one of the most intimidating when considering taking a retreat. I felt the same before my first retreat, the one I told you about in Step 8, apparently, it says here. In the fall of 1980, I was taking my first weekly class in Vipassana meditation when my teacher, Akasa, told me that he was going to hold a five-day retreat over the coming Thanksgiving weekend. My girlfriend signed up and wanted me to come along. She had already taken several day-longs and one 10-day retreat the previous summer. I was intrigued and felt a strong desire to develop, to develop the qualities of calm and clarity I'd heard about from her and others who had taken retreats. But two things frightened me, my knees and, my, and the silence. Whenever I went to the class and meditated for 40 minutes, I spent what seemed like ages, probably 15 or 20 minutes, struggling with the burning sensations in my knees. I was afraid that a retreat, which involved many such meditation periods each day, would be agonizing. As for the silence, I just couldn't imagine not being able to talk to people. I suppose it was a fear of loneliness. Even now, when people express concern over trying to be silent, I'm not sure what the fear is. But I had it. For days, I vacillated. My girlfriend and Akasa encouraged, cajoled, teased, and finally, I agreed that I would go. Ironically, I turned out to be right. 
Many of the sittings were painful for me. Plus, I felt a profound loneliness in the silence. But even though these fears were realized, I left the retreat with a great sense of faith and commitment. Yes, it was difficult, but more important, a vision of a new way of experiencing life had opened up to me. I saw more clearly than ever how bringing a mindful attention to each moment enriched and deepened my experience of life. This was precious, more important than the physical and emotional struggles involved. I felt on that retreat that in some ways I was experiencing life, real life, for the first time. As you sit on retreat, mindfulness becomes more and more precise. You begin to notice the sensations of every movement, the subtle shifts of thought and mood. Colors and sounds and tastes are all amplified and clarified. You sit and watch a bee dancing on a flower as though you were at the Russian ballet. You savor the simple rice and veggie fare as though it were being served in a four-star restaurant. You listen to the birds at dawn as though you were attending the London Philharmonic. With this mindfulness comes a powerful concentration. During particularly calm sittings, you may feel the sensations of the breath as though observing in slow motion with a laser-like awareness and mountain-like steadiness. The mind becomes so still that you are able to sense when you were just about to have a thought noticing the vague stirrings that indicate thinking about to happen. And in that moment, you can actually choose not to think. This kind of depth of practice is probably only possible on retreat. Afterward, you might be able to preserve something of this depth for a few days or weeks, but eventually it fades. What we're left with, however, is not just fond memories. Retreat, retreats teach us profound life lessons which can carry into our daily lives in vital ways if we let them. On retreat, I see that my common, everyday vision of life is only one version of the way things are. I rem I'm reminded that much of what I believe is just a mental construction. When I remind myself of that in daily life, I'm relieved of some of the burden of solving the, quote, problems, unquote, of the world. I remember that there is a deeper way of seeing things. Practicing on retreats, I see the cyclical flow of practice. One sitting, I'm concentrated, the next restless, later I'm sleepy, and again I wake up and feel sharp and clear. Retreats remind me that even under the best of conditions, my practice isn't perfect. Retreats teach deep lessons about impermanence, suffering, and not-self that get under my skin into my understanding of life and the world. These insights transform my daily experience in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. In every spiritual tradition, withdrawal from the world, retreat, as an important place. Jesus went to the desert for 40 days. The Buddha sat beneath the Bodhi tree, vowing to become enlightened. Native Americans go into the wilderness on vision quests. This time of inner solitude opens us to the deeper realities of our lives, of our minds, and of our bodies. Forsaking the distractions of daily life, 
facing squarely our demons and finally touching the place of stillness and wisdom inside. We come to know life in a new way, in a way that inspires and invigorates. This gives us courage and faith. People enter retreat to seek guidance and find peace, to uncover personal and universal truths, to find the deepest love and the most profound wisdom, to find forgiveness and joy. Retreat, finally, acts as the foundation for all of our spiritual development. You know, and I, I find that I'm, I feel like I'm often teaching, I'm often teaching things that I, I know, well, well let, let me back up and say that differently. When I'm teaching, I feel how informed by my retreat practice my teaching is. It's, it feels as if, and I think to a great extent it's true, that the that most of what comes through me that has some degree of wisdom comes out of that. It's certainly not from just reading books or listening to talks or meditating for 45 minutes in the morning. And, and even as I read from this, my book on that experience, I know that I'm I'm still not quite capturing what it is that's powerful about this experience. I think in some ways maybe maybe the simplest way to put it is that we really learn to let go on retreats. That that's and that's what I think at the end of the day what they're about. And it's one of the reasons why the the retreat environment is so simple that there's very little to hold on to and when we want more it's not there <laughs> and so we have to let go we're forced to let go uh, or or suffer and so we quickly see how our suffering comes from our grasping because they're inevitably on retreats. You want things that aren't there. Uh, and, and that you feel the wanting with that, you know, profound stillness and enhanced awareness, enhanced mindfulness you tune in very clearly to what's going on. And it also, because you also are able to really find a, a tremendous joy, a deeper happiness and joy probably than any other circumstances, it becomes, again, so clear that the Buddha was right, that that happiness and freedom isn't dependent on getting that what you want, that it really comes from letting go. And as you let go and let go and let go and move into that 
profound joy and peace. Your faith, as I said, grows because what you've studied and what you've had inklings of and a sense of becomes just self-evident. Oh, yeah. It's really not worth clinging to these things. And so that's, to me, the insight that I think we are trying to to develop, to really de- take in, so that when we come out of retreat, you know, the concentration and everything will dissolve. But when we really understand, you know, struggling and fighting and trying to get this stuff and striving and, oh, I've got to have things that way. I can't live without this. We we really, it becomes really clear that we don't have to have those things, that we can live without those things. That and and that can be it can be a very simple moment of like oh I, I mean this this just to be a silly example like I always take half and half in my coffee we're out of half and half all there is is milk you know it's like you know if we can get obsessed about stuff like this like I can't have my breakfast I need to get to the store I don't care if it's like you know six o'clock in the morning and I, you know, I'm just going to go in my pajamas because I got to have my half and half, whatever. Right. We get into these things. It's like, and I mean, literally I have had very similar little let letting goes, lettings go let that come out of that experience on retreat. Cause you just, it's like uh, uh, things you, you know, you're on a retreat. It's like, okay. They don't have that spice that I like, you know, or they don't have whatever it is that you want, you know. And it's like, and then you realize, you know, you get along without it. And you're like, really not a big deal. I, I, I mean, uh, particularly in our culture, we live in such a you can have it all and you should have it all. And if you don't have it all, then you should go get it right now. That's so much of what our culture seems to communicate to us that I hear, you know, and like, come on, like, it's right there. Just grab it, right? Get that money, get that power, get that, you know, you know thing, that object, that, that car that, you know, uh, you need it, you know, and of course, the advertisers of the world know that there's this human tendency to grasp and to, to desire, and they feed that. They, they, uh, you know, they, they, they really. It's like they studied Buddhism, right? It's like advertisers are like the anti-Buddhists. They go to the Buddha. What, how, what is it that people crave? Oh yeah, well, we'll give them bright colors and you know loud noises and uh, you know make things really sexy. Okay. And we'll trigger all those, you know, cravings, those, those uh, underlying tendencies, those, those animal instincts and, and, and they'll buy it that, you know, they'll feel that they've got to have it because, you know, their, their craving will be so strong that they won't realize that it's just craving. <laughs> and that when if and when they get it they won't really be happy but that's okay because then they'll just want more stuff and we'll have more stuff to sell them right 
so they have us they have us figured out i mean of course they are just as the people who create those things are just as caught in the cycle because they're they're doing it so they can make lots of money and and get their own things but but this is the perversity of and 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 it's one of the reasons why it's the so so we have that setup and it happens you know we're the wealthiest culture you know western culture american and european culture these you know hyper developed countries hyper wealthy countries are the the most wealthy and comfortable uh, civilizations in history right there's never been anything like a life that we have i mean it's a joke you know a kings of a thousand years ago lived like the most impoverished people in 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 our in in like many of areas many of the developed areas of the world but that aside I'm, you know i'm not stating historical accuracies here that's not the point what i'm trying to get to in a roundabout way is that the reason that Buddhism has an attraction to our culture is because we all live like the Prince Gotama lived. We all have so much comfort. Uh, and, and I say all, I, sh I should, I should not say all. I, I will take that back. Many people in our culture live with more, with so much comfort that they realize that 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 material comfort is not the answer and that doesn't mean that oh you know if you're poor you should be happy that's ridiculous you know because uh, really the poverty is as much a relative matter as it is an actual matter it's there's no reason that when there's this hyper wealth that there should also be poverty in that so this is uh, i'm not i want to put that aside the the economic and and uh, you know justice elements of what i'm talking about but just talk about the emotional element that led young people in the 60s to say there's got to be something more and it was those people who went to india and found this practice and brought it back and so it for those of us who have some degree of comfort in, in our lives we realize it's just not going to it's never going to be enough there's enough and then there's it's never going to be enough and and we can't we get those two confused right and so i think that's one of the things that inspires people in the the developed world to seek after this practice that asks us to let go because if you if you really don't have any economic security 
it's ridiculous if somebody says, oh, you should let go of your, you know, grasping. It's like, well, what do you mean? I'm, you know, I'm just trying to feed myself. But when you have more than you need, when the literally people eat themselves to death because they have so there's so much food that people, you know, lose, you know, lose all restraint. Then learning to let go starts to become a sensible and wise response. And, and it, it, we don't have to be convinced, you know, we start to see like, yes, letting go. And so, you know, here I am talking to a bunch of people who presumably identify as addicts in recovery. And here is the <laughs> second and another really obvious place where we discovered the wisdom of letting go. You know, what what was addiction but grasping to the ultimate degree? Yeah. And when we realize that that doesn't work and we stop that behavior, we're walking into this practice of letting go. We're being introduced to the idea that instead of getting everything you want, sometimes it's better to let go. And this is another reason why I think people in recovery can be feel very much at home with Buddhist teachings. When you're introduced to the idea that, oh, there is suffering and it's caused by clinging and it ends when you let go, it's kind of like light bulbs go off. Like, oh, right. I think that's... That's addiction, and and, and it is. Uh, it's it's quite interesting to see that uh, that the path of recovery is parallel to the Buddhist path. And indeed, I I hear certain teachers, Ajahn Amaro, for one, who who use the term addiction now to describe the human condition. Uh, Aside from any specific drug or alcohol problems, he basically refers to the the way that people live, the the way we follow our craving and caught, get caught up in creating self and in, in creating suffering. That that it's addiction and it has to be broken. So um, I've drifted off from what I was talking about. So let me come back a little bit to the idea of retreat and and how that trains us in a very profound way to let go. And so we know that recovery trains us to let go. And anytime you meditate, you practice letting go to some degree. And I think that People in recovery very often, even before they've developed a meditation practice, start to see that, oh, it might be for, good for me to not just let go of the drugs and alcohol, but maybe I should let go of this, uh, you know, eating 
problem I have or this gambling problem or my problems with relationships or sexuality or my sexual behavior. And, and we start to see that there are all these different ways that we cling. And and re, the recovery introduces us to this idea that, <clears throat> oh, letting go is okay. I can do it. And it's worth it. And, and we can get very um, inspired by that. I, I think I certainly had that experience uh, in my early recovery. And hopefully it stayed with me, but particularly early in my recovery that that you know this idea that that my addiction wasn't just this you know you drinking and using that that there were underlying things that needed to be addressed that needed to be let go of so um yeah i i i guess all of this is to say that i hope that you guys will if you haven't been on a retreat that you will consider doing that and if you have that you that you do think of it as part of a a yearly cycle that you fit in i know there are some people on here who have who have sat on retreats with me it's good to see everyone um and and i know that many people once they once they experience that realize oh yeah this needs to be part of part of my work part of my practice, part of my recovery. So I offer these words, I hope, as inspiration to some degree, and I will open it up and see if there are any questions or comments people have or corrections. Thank you. Monique, people, and this is um, what I've been working with lately. And these are words from the Teaching on Loving Kindness, the Metta Sutta. And uh, these phrases I find particularly helpful. And they focus on the idea of radiating kindness over the entire world. And as I do this practice, my first way of engaging it is to imagine that my body is the whole world. And then I will expand it out from there. So just sitting for a moment, feeling your body. And listen to these words. Radiating kindness over the entire world. Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Outwards and unbounded free from hatred and ill will. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. And radiating out from your body now over the entire world, Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. 
for offering loving kindness to all those who are suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you, dear ones, and uh, be well, stay safe, and keep practicing. <laughs> okay, there you go. Gotcha. <laughs> nice to see everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.